When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Fright School. Are you ready? Class is in session. Welcome back to Fright School. Hello, Joe. Hi, Joshua. How you doing? I am doing so, so good today because we have a special guest here in the West Craven Mobile Book Learning Annex that I'm super, super excited about. So if you don't mind, we're just going to dispense with our usual frivolity and just get right to that introduction. Our guest today is a recovering musical theater major who enjoys graveyards, haunted mansions, gothic fashions, decorative skulls, black tea, red wine. When she's not reading or writing books, you can find her on YouTube as her fucking delightful alter ego, the maven of the eventide. Her humorously analytical video essay web series, Vampire Reviews, examines the evolution of vampire tropes as allegories for social issues in media and pop culture through a feminist lens. I had the extraordinary pleasure of spending a week with her in Romania, where she made me want to rethink my thoughts on Anne Rice and her vampires. So please welcome to Fright School, Mistress of the Macabre, Elisa. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited you're here. It's like we get to have a reunion because I can't believe it's already been like how many weeks? Almost three. It'll be three on today, I guess. Yeah, today. Wow. That is so crazy time. Have you? I keep having dreams about the trip. Do you like dream that you're back there? Yes. It was so, so cool. Magical. Yeah. In a very like really spooky was. Dracula way. The good way. <laughs> exactly. Is there any better way for magic to come about? Joe, lucky you. Today, you get to be in the room. There are two of us today. Are you excited? <laughs> I am titillated. I'm like trying to not stare directly at you because I feel like you will own my soul. But I also... <laughs> I'm looking at you because I won't mind it. Yes, I agree. She, Go I on. You look, I'm, you're just so ethereal. I appreciate your whole aesthetic, obviously. Let's chat a little bit. So first, let's talk about your YouTube series. I've watched a couple of the videos. I'm trying to work, work my way through. How did you watch? I watched I watched the movies that I like so far. I watched the Byzantium. I watched your Let the Right One In. I watched half of your interview and then I was like, no, I don't want to get all that in my head. I want to wait and actually talk to you about it instead of already having an idea. And then I just finished your interview with Sam Irvin. You're such a good interviewer. You're just great about being curious about people and giving like space. It was so delightful. And those listening, Sam Irvin was the director of Elvira's Haunted Hills. He was with us when we were in Romania with Cassandra. He was so much fun. Made that trip. A lot of things made that trip, but it would not have been the same without Sam. Yeah, I agree. Now that we are like a few weeks out of it, is there any moment that like really stood out for you on the trip? I think (laughs) it was Bran Castle. 
because yeah. there's so many great things about that trip and some things that weren't that great, but mostly overall, it was pretty great. But that last night at Bram Castle, when we had all gotten to know each other, we were all best friends by now. And then Cassandra was out there with us after having spending the first half of the week kind of feeling under the weather. So being a little more reserved, now she's feeling better. She's out there hanging out with us. And we were in Bram Castle, which is wonderfully renovated and has a gorgeous like display of this is how it would have been back then, but still like very accessible and just wandering around those halls and thinking like, this is very similar to what could have been Dracula's castle in Bram Stoker's novel and just immersing yourself into it. And then we had a nice dinner. Yeah. <laughs> With those delicious fish rolls. <laughs> it was, I'm still like, I don't know what they that was. They took the but... fish and put it into a spiral and that makes it fancier. Yeah, apparently. It was very interesting on this. Uh, what Like they made a... It was polenta that they had dyed black. And I asked them what it was because we've been eating polenta all week because that's like the national staple of Romania because it used to be like a corn basket before they switched to the rape flowers. And (laughs) I saw this black grain on there. And I was like, oh, it's not polenta for once because polenta is yellowish. So I asked the server and she's, that's polenta dyed black because we are all about black here. I was like, (laughs) yes, thank you. Right. You re- we really felt catered to like the goth experience on this whole trip. Like people really got it, got into it you, at the places that we went, obviously. Like Romania embraces it. You go to other yeah. places. Like if you go to the Paris Opera House and ask about the family opera, the Paris people will turn up their nose and be like, ugh, tourists. But you go to Romania and ask about Dracula and they're like, see my wares. That definitely was a big standout for me because obviously Cassandra took photos with all of us in front of the castle, like a really spur of the moment, really in an uncontrolled way. That was so cool. And so gracious of her having that place to like ourselves mm-hmm. super cool i love that was one of your favorite moments because yeah all right that's enough making people jealous who are listening i wanted to be there but hopefully there'll be another one so i am curious about how did you get started with your youtube channel you've got a nice big subscriber base and lots of really cool videos and i love like your alter ego just the whole thing it's delightful so if you can talk a little bit about that i've been doing it for about 11 years And I had friends who already had their own YouTube channels that I was working with. I was helping them write scripts. I was helping them shoot things, film things. I was in some of their videos sometimes. And I just got into that world until I was ready to make a channel of my own. And the friend that I was mainly working with, Lindsay Ellis, isn't really a goth at all. So all the stuff I wanted to talk about that was more spooky related, I thought that would be my channel. And I'm just going to talk about spooky gothic things, primarily vampires, because at the time, 2011 was like that post-Twilight boom, where now we had 18 vampire movies a year, and most of them are pretty bad. So just looking at them and being like, what have vampires come to? What is the evolution of vampire media? And what does it reflect about society? What does it mean? So watching these movies or reading books or anything about vampires, like I used to review vampire perfume, vampire wine, anything, just talking about like why this is showing up in society right now. What does it mean, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing? Why is so much vampire media bad? There are very few like great vampire movies, right? Like of the hundreds and hundreds of vampire movies out there, maybe like a dozen are great. And just looking at that and analyzing it and having fun creating the character, because back then, the style at the time on the internet was to have a character and to not be yourself. That's gone the way of the dodo now, and I'm like a relic of olden times. I came up with the character, which was heavily inspired by Elvira, obviously. Like, my name, Maven of the Eventide, is a very pretentious paraphrase of Mistress of the Dark. 
And people would always ask me, like, your channel's so niche. Most of your other friends focus on reviewing, like, whatever they want, any kind of movies, any kind of media. You only review vampire things. Aren't you going to run out of stuff to talk about? And it's been 11 years, and I have not. So there you go. Yeah. Why focus on vampires for you? What is the draw to the vampire? We're doing This is our Pride series, as our, a dear listener knows. We're doing a whole thing about the queerness of vampires. But just in general, why the vampire? Why does that stand out for you? You know how you always talk about like horror is always political. Horror is always deeper than people give it credit for. There's always a meaning, a message there. Vampires particularly spoke to me out of all of that because they're the most human of all monsters. The vampire is the monster that blends in, unlike most of your other monsters are very obviously different. Yet the vampires are still an other. So that dichotomy of fitting into society while also not fitting into society was much more interesting to me and I thought had a lot more to talk about than and the other things. I like all kinds of spooky gothic stuff. We talk about other things. Fan of the Opera is a big one for me. Edgar Allan Poe, anything that's like that classic gas lamp Victorian gothic era. That's all that I love. When we're talking about the queerness of vampires, how much are you willing to blend in? How much are you willing to stand out and embrace the darkness, embrace whatever it is that society doesn't want? That's such a beautiful kind of way to put it. Monster who blends in. You mentioned the Phantom of the Opera. What draws you to that? out of curiosity. And you're talking I, about it, like the book, the musical. Yeah, all of it. I've been obsessed yeah. with Family Opera since I was like 10 years old. I liked the Hades, Persephone, Death and the Maiden aspect of the romantic part of it. I like the tragedy of it that they don't end up together yet. That's still like the core relationship of it. Anything that's gothic, truly gothic, doesn't have a happy ending for someone. Dracula has a happy ending for Mina and Jonathan, but not for Lucy, not for Dracula. They don't have their happy ending. And so that family opera ends with the monster being redeemed, like the monster having a character arc, which often you don't see the monster have a character arc. He often just gets defeated by the end. We really get into the sympathy of the dark character, of the bad guy, of the gothic part of it. And I love that aspect. I also like the Phantom as a character just because he's like the Superman of gothic characters. He's a super genius. He's an architect. He's a musician. He can do anything. I just love that kind of character. That like tall, dark, mysterious, forbidden, alluring kind of character. I want to be that, but I also want that. It's like the perfect thing. I think that is a big draw, especially for the musical. And it was so enduring. Didn't it like just close on Broadway after? It did. And I was there. I went to the closing performance. I was so sad after 35 years. Mm. I first saw it in California because that's where I grew up. But then when I went to college in New York City, starting in 2001, I'd seen it there like 26 times over the years that I lived there. And the musical isn't even like my favorite version of Phantom, but it's the one that's there, right? One of my favorite versions of Phantom is the 1980s slasher horror version starring Robert England. You would know yeah. it's Freddy Krueger. I was going to ask version. you about that. <laughs> it's not at all accurate to the book, but it takes those parts of the book that are just like really cool and really fun. The sort of, oh, he's a badass superhero kind of like vigilante Batman wannabe, yet also the bad guy kind of situation. And they just have Robert England embody that. And they do actually introduce a supernatural element to it, too. So he isn't just like a super genius. He sells his soul to the devil, and so like the devil is an actual character in there and stuff. But it's just such a fun version, and he does such a good job of capturing that like Victorian, everything's going to be bad puns villain humor, and I love it. And when I met him, I went to Mad Monster Party in Charlotte 
just before the pandemic happened. And I stood in line and I met him and I took a photo and he had his Freddy claw there and he's just say die or something like that. So I took the Freddy photo, but then I told him, I love you and Phantom of the Opera. That's one of my favorite movies. He's really because everyone was there for Freddy, right? Every single person was there for Freddy. But then he started talking my ear off about like how proud he was of that Phantom of the Opera movie because he thought it was an elevated version of horror. He was like, we had Shakespearean actors in it. We had all this and all of that. And he was just like so proud of that movie. And he's such a sweetheart in general. Yeah. So if you haven't watched any Phantom of the Opera movies or discussed it on this channel, I recommend that one. Oh, I love Phantom of the Opera. It was the first musical that I ever became obsessed with when I was yes, a kid. You're from, my people. Yes. I grew up on Guam and I had a music teacher who the way he would do musicals is that he would just write a bunch of keywords on the board and then he would just tell the story. And he was a very good storyteller. I would just tell the story of the musical. I was completely entranced by his retelling of Phantom of the Opera. And then he found a recording where it's like the full stage recording, including dialogue. And we were following along in the script. Is that the 25th anniversary Albert Hall recording? Yes, I believe so. Oh, that yeah. was about 10 years ago. So you've dated yourself. <laughs> no, actually, then it wasn't because it wasn't. It was well over more than it was like 20 years ago. Oh, maybe recording. it was a bootleg then. It must have been. It must have been a bootleg. At the end of it, he was like, all right, everybody, I have a movie. I have the Phantom of the Opera movie I'll show you. Now, it's not the musical, but I'm going to show it to you anyway. Mind you, we're in middle school. He shows mm -hmm. the Robert England version. Nice. And I was like, what in the name and of like all? like naked people in it, too. Yeah, I was like, okay, I guess this is a thing that we're doing. I remember being like in my room, a budding gay boy, just completely living for it. I feel like that speaks to a lot of people that are maybe closeted too, because it's the mask you wear, right? It's yes. the mask you wear, but also I related a lot that sad gay boy vibe of longing for someone who who you know people no joke about him there. as being like a basement incel, but that's relatable in some ways. We all can relate just a little bit to that guy. Basement incel, write that down too. That's he wears a fedora delightful. too. Goodness. Joe, that story you just told about the 1980s Phantom, that is hilarious. And now I cannot wait to do that movie just so we can dive deeper into that. So to go off something you just said, Elisa, about Phantom as like a queer narrative. So far in this series, the first film we talked about was Dracula's Daughter. Then we moved to Vampiros Lesbos. And obviously today we're going to discuss Interview with the Vampire. And I'm just curious, what other vampire films for you are like queer necessity? Films, that's hard because you look at vampire stories that are queer, let the right one in, and then they straight wash it in the film. There's a right. lot of stuff like that. And the lesbian vampire thing has been around since the mid-1800s. That predates mm -hmm. Dracula. We've always had lesbian vampires because lock up your girls or they'll be deviants. Right. But the homoeroticism with male characters and vampires was a very locked up type. You have things like Fearless Vampire Killers, where the one obviously gay vampire man is treated like a joke. He's supposed to be the comic relief. Or you have very subtle things like Brides of Dracula, where the vampire is this like glamorous pretty boy, and he's locked up in the basement to keep him away from his unnatural urges. But you don't really get obviously gay male vampires until we get to interview with the vampire. There are a lot of vampire movies that predate it that have homoerotic subtext that like Joel Schumacher's Lost Boys, like the relationship right. between David and Michael is so gay and Joel Schumacher is so gay, but that's not yeah. how it was 
supposed to be perceived by audiences. It's there. You can't deny it. He, there's a token like woman that they both sleep with just to prove that they're not gay. And so you don't really get the actual gay male vampire stuff until the 90s. And then after that, more came like True Blood has some really good stuff in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, I was just agreeing because you're right. Lost Boys, I freaking love, especially because I wanted to be like the Kiefer Sutherland character and then make out with the Jason Patrick character, of course. And it's interesting you say, because I remember reading something a few years ago about how a lot of like male, straight male relationships are very homoerotic because it's like Mm -hmm. most, a lot of men that like, especially that are operating under these patriarchal toxic attitudes really only have like love and respect for other men. They just don't recognize it as that. They don't recognize Mm -hmm. the fact that they give other men autonomy, that they give other men reciprocity. And then the women in their lives are just things to use. So that's, that, that's really interesting. That kind of analysis of the lost boys, which I, again, love. Look at the original Dracula. There's so much homoerotic subtext in this. And there's a lot of evidence that Bram Stoker was closeted and that he Mm. may have put it in there unintentionally because he was just writing his truth, right? Like he doesn't have an agenda. The relationship between Dracula and Jonathan at the beginning is very Mm -hmm. homoerotic. Dracula's relationship with Renfield has all these undertones that are just naturally there. And the way that Dracula treats women is much more disposable. There's always that erotic element to the vampire. Even when vampires are like completely repulsive, this vampire is just a monster. When you get those vampires that don't have any of that erotic element, any of that romance to it, any of that like gothic romance to it, those are the vampires that start becoming much more shallow, much more like faceless, personalityist monster. And like I said, vampires are the most human of all monsters. When you start taking that humanity away, they start be like, they might as well be a zombie. They might as well be like a creature. Yeah. So the vampires that are more like people that have this underlying eroticism, it's never a completely heteronormative eroticism. There is always something queer going on there just because of the very nature of the forbiddenness of it. Yeah, that's beautiful. On that line of thinking, when you look at like the vampires of 30 Days of Night, like Mm -hmm. that's more along the line of like pure monster They don't blend in. They're not concerned with blending in. Mm. So it's more on the zombie element of it. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Those vampires, they have personalities. They have conversations. But they don't have, like, relationships. Like, they aren't Mm. people. They're monsters that can talk and can act like people. But they don't have, like, relationships. All they care about is eating and feeding and dominating and destroying and they don't have hopes and dreams and like problems and even Dracula he's just he goes on his tirade about modern times and he doesn't like the way society's changed and Dracula in the original novel is not romantic like he is in most of the movies that you see but he still is like a person 30 days of night I did not like the movie very much the comics like it's fine it is what it is and it does a good job but I did not like the movie version of 30 days of night I actually really like the balance of something like a Russell Edgington, who's oh, like very yeah, aware yeah. that he's like an apex predator. Like we are, we don't need your approval or your like mm-hmm. vote. Like we'll eat you and your children. But then he also has this like great love for Talbot yes. and is obviously very heartbroken. So one last thing before we transition, I did want to talk a little bit about your book, The Company of Death, which I love. The first line of the zombie apocalypse was just the beginning of vampire hunter Emily's problems. <laughs> that <laughs> sentence is delightful. So talk a little bit about 
why you wanted to write this book, bringing in the zombie mythology, meeting vampire mythology, and maybe give us a hint at what the future holds for the series, because it does say book one. <laughs> yes. So it was originally a giant book, like a thousand page book. And my publisher was like, if we split it into three books, we can make more money. And also that meant I could make three books with arcs of their own. It's not like Lord of the Rings where I just like chopped it into three. I actually reworked it into three different books. But I love the Grim Reaper. That is my favorite character archetype. Death and the Maiden is my favorite motif. I just love that. And I was thinking that I love this character, the Grim Reaper, but I couldn't find any stories, any books, any movies about the Grim Reaper that weren't comedic unless Mm. the Grim Reaper was a person who became the Grim Reaper, which is not what I was interested in. I wanted the guy who is always death. There is only one death and forever has been. And the best version of that out there is probably Terry Pratchett's Discworld which I was not familiar with back when I was having these thoughts. But again, that's comedic, right? Like it's satire, that's comedy. I wanted a serious story about this guy because I take my gothic very seriously. (laughs) So I decided to write one of my own because you know that they say, write the book you want to read, write the book that you can't find. So I was trying to think of what's a story for the Grim Reaper, like a good, serious story that's not funny, that's not satire. What could his problem be that he needs to overcome? You need like a character with a goal and then an obstacle to reach that goal and all these like ways you structure a novel, right? So I thought the worst thing that could happen to the Grim Reaper is that people stop dying. And when do people stop dying? When they undie. So the undead are vampires. Vampires are smart. Vampires are people. There's not going to be vampires that are just going to spread all over the world enough that it causes the Grim Reaper problems. But zombies, on the other hand, do exactly that. So the zombie apocalypse has gotten to the point where hardly anybody is dying anymore. Now they are undying. So when you become a zombie, the Grim Reaper doesn't come and take you to the afterlife, right? You just become a zombie. And when the zombies die... In my version of it, he doesn't come and take that zombie to the afterlife. Like That zombie is lost to him. Those people are essentially cheating death. So this is his problem. The zombie apocalypse is wiping out all of humanity. People are either becoming zombies or becoming vampires because vampires have always existed in this world secretly. But now that the zombie apocalypse has happened, they're, they are out there doing their thing. So I thought this like double dose of undead vampires and zombies together would make his problem bigger. And everything spiraled out from there. I have always hated zombies. They're so scary to me. I don't like zombie movies. They like they give me nightmares. I have zombie nightmares all the time. And I was dating someone at the time who loves zombies and liked to torture me with zombie movies just because it was funny. And I'm like, why didn't you do this to me? And you know what they say? Write what scares you. So I was like, well, zombies scare me. So I guess I'll write about zombies. And I love the five-man band tropes, and I love a monster mash. So these two things. A monster mash is like when you have Frankenstein, Wolfman, Dracula, the mummy all together in a thing. So I was like, okay, I have zombies, I have vampires, I have the Grim Reaper, but that's three things. I need more monsters. So I introduced artificial intelligence that has reached actual like sentience. So I have these android characters that are like people... They don't have souls. So again, the Grim Reaper can't reap them, but they are people in the society too. So there is that sci-fi element. So my five-man band is one human, one zombie, one vampire, one android, and one Grim Reaper, the only Grim Reaper. And they have an adventure together. But when I was looking (laughs) at my characters, I did that, grew up in the 90s, 
everyone is male in a TV series and maybe one token chick sort of mentality. I was like, wait, no, we're not going to do that. I got to make some of these characters female. So I was like, okay, the vampire can't be female because I have this clear picture of this character in my head and he's already male in my head. The Grim Reaper is pretty much coded male in most cultures. So I'm going to go with that because that's the character I was looking for. And the human has to be male because the reason why the human is a monster in this monster mash is because he's a cishet white man. And that is the monster of society, right? Yeah, right now, yeah especially now. <laughs> that only left the android and the zombie to be female. And I was like, I guess I got those as females. Huh, surprise. And then that female zombie wound up taking over the book as the protagonist, as the main character. And it wound up much more focused on zombies than I ever intended it to be. So the Grim Reaper has a problem. Everyone is undying. No one is dying anymore. He's got to solve this problem. And Emily, the main character, becomes a zombie, but because of the way she dies, she's the only zombie in the world that like still is a person, the kind of way I that said that vampires are people. So okay. she and the Grim Reaper, mm. she wants a cure to become a zombie and he wants to get like his powers back to make people die again. So they're on this like quest together to try to solve their problem. And it's a road trip novel and they road trip across America. And I never intended it this way, but people called it Gothic Wizard of Oz <laughs> because <laughs> we have, you got one of each thing and it works out. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to finish it now. I'm even more excited because like I said, I've just started it. I'm midway through the second chapter. So again, most of our our listeners know I'm in grad school. So it's like I have so little time to enjoy things. But your book right now is the thing that I'm reading for fun. And stay tuned for our our next newsletter because we'll have information about the book and for our Fright School book club. But it is, oh my gosh, I'm just so happy you're here. All right, we're going to take a really quick break. And we will be back. Oh, I can't believe I'm saying this. Because for the last few years, I've always said we're probably never, ever going to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. I have yeah. questions. Yeah I, yeah, I know. I'm sure lots of other people do, too. But I've always said it, and I can't believe it. We're actually going to talk about 1994's Interview with the Vampire. We'll be right back. Ah, the smell of the video store. I love this place. Do you remember when you could just look at the walls of covers? We had to choose just by looking at the cover and reading the crappy synopsis. It was, you were leaving with one. And the only way to know what new movies were coming out is you actually had to watch the trailers instead of skipping them. Right, we didn't have the internet to look it up. We had one guy named Todd behind the counter that would (laughs) tell us what was good or not. And Todd strangely liked way too many romantic comedies. Yes, but you always knew when the boobies were coming because Todd made sure. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and remember all the awful CG we had to put up with in the mid-90s? We talk about that a lot, don't we? Join us on Analog Jones and the Temple Film where we talk about VHS tapes. And we wax nostalgia like none other. All right, welcome back again. Are you ready, dear listener? Interview with the Vampire, 1994. Directed by Neil Jordan. Based on, of course, Anne Rice's 1976 novel, which was itself based on like a short story she wrote in 60-something, 68? That's mind-boggling. I didn't even know that there was another story. Yeah, it's very different from the finished novel. Okay, that's good to know. And hopefully we can chat a little bit about that because, Elisa, besides being an incredible vampire critic, you also are like number one Anne Rice fan. You have so many great things to, to talk about. But Interview the Vampire... 
1994, Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt. I'm sure most of us are very familiar. We also have a very young Kirsten Dunst. Who else? Christian Slater, Antonio Banderas. So just hilarity ensues, right? As usual. Joe, let's start, as we always do, with your thoughts. Was this the first time you watched Interview with the Vampire? Yes. So I I know I'm assuming to Anne Rice fans that one, probably not reading the book, is sin number one, strike number one. Two is that I watched the new series before knowing anything about the movie. I think the only thing that I know of the movie was the commercials that would come on like USA or TBS for around Halloween. And then stumbling across the scene with Claudia dying in the with the light. And But that's it. I've not seen anything else. I had no idea where we were going to end up. I was very, like, I went in almost completely with a blank slate. Yeah, because the TV show is only half the story, so you wouldn't have it, known the end. Exactly. Yeah. And I was like, in my mind, as I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, okay. The first two seasons are going to be probably this whole, <laughs> probably if not, like, this whole first two or three seasons will be this one movie. That being said, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I think this is a rewatch for me for sure. And I have to say that I was surprised how gory it was, especially for 1994 and just all of the stuff with the blood and everything. I was like, oh, okay, this is really interesting. And it has three of like at that time, three of the most male leady people in it like brad pitt tom cruise antonio banderas and i was like wow this movie is really gay it's like dracula's daughter right like we're not really talking about it but it's all we're gonna talk about is how (laughs) gay it is and that was something that i that made me appreciate the series more is how explicit the relationship and the queerness between the two, between Lestat and Louis are in the series. But this was a good, this was a really good movie. I had not, I did not think I was going to love it as much as I did. And I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised and I'm, I just can't wait to talk about it. Uh, Joshua, I don't think I've ever been truly clear about why you said that we would never do that movie, yes, this movie Joshua. on here. So why? can you like, yeah, can you like remind me or just be honest about your feelings about why we weren't ever going to do this movie? Again, I think it's a couple things. One, I was never a fan of like these kinds of vampires, just these sort of aristocratic, this kind of view. There's part of me that's like the queerness kind of thing. It's like I was tortured for a long time about my queerness. So in embracing it, it's I'm just not like when we talk about vampire narratives that kind of have that. I'm just so tortured by my existence. I just bulk a little bit at that just as just uncomfortable with it, like as a queer person. Again, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on. Um, So it just came from also just not being a fan. And a lot of the movies we talk about, it's I love, or in some sort of way, I have a fondness for them. And not that necessarily always makes for great conversation. We should engage with things that also make us uncomfortable. So I just, yeah, I just never really had a big love affair for it. I remember getting the book when I was probably 12 or 13, which was probably, or no, probably even younger, actually. I might have been like 10 or 11. So I saw this when I was really young. And I was very precocious as a reader. Like my mom taught me to read like almost immediately. I was reading like Stephen King books at like eight, nine, and engaging in conversations with my teenage mother about that. <laughs> or actually by then she would have been like 20 something. My mother had me at 15. So being raised by a teenager gave me a really loose idea of what's child appropriate. 
and she let me read anything. And so I just didn't fall. I have it here. My I have a big copy of it that has the interview Vampire Lestat and Queen of the Damned. Yes. Yeah, exactly. One of those kind of big books, which I do every now and again, I open up, I think, you know what, I'm going to read it again, because I haven't read it in a long time. And that Again, this is part of the only the reason we're doing this is because I had a great conversation with Elisa about it and about like No, you told me you didn't like it and I'm like, and then we have <laughs> a three-hour bus ride to fit. And now we're doing it. So I feel like I, I accomplished something. Yeah, no, you totally made me re- rethink it. And there were some other things that I realized like I never thought about of for me when we talk about on this show about cultural anxiety, when we talk about queerness, that there there were some things that I'd never really considered, especially as a cultural artifact of the 90s, that I was like, oh, okay, I have a way in even beyond the discussion that we had. What yeah. you're saying is the interview with a vampire changed a lot in this landscape of vampire media. And by the time you were getting into stuff, it had become passe. It had become cliche. It had become mockable because we had so much that was inspired by it that it went over the hill and back again. And that's probably why you may have had that attitude. But like, we never would have gotten where we are today without to begin with, which is what I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, I actually, that's, I did get to that part in your video. So you're absolutely right. So I was not into like Vampire the Masquerade. I I wasn't into those kinds of ideas, even Underworld. I really liked like her matrixy, latexy kind of thing. But the other vampires were all very, their brocade vests and empire waist. Like it's very Vampire the Masquerade. That's what I associate that sort of idea with and Anne Rice kind of vampires. So I just went the other direction. I was reading Poppy Z. Bright's Lost Souls. I'm like, where are these vampires? Where are the near dark vampires? Where are like Lost Boys? I want a fucking vampire on a motorcycle eating people. Like that is sexy and hot. Not the vampires these, had like, too many feelings for you. Yeah, they were just so dandyish. <laughs> and part of that is, it's a mix. It's a mix of like internalized homophobia mm-hmm. issues that I was dealing with as well, that I'm perfectly comfortable talking about and recognizing. There is definitely that because there was part of me that like started embracing like not gay as in, oh, please accept me, but queer as in, fuck you. I will fucking fuck your dad. And <laughs> it's like that kind of energy. So I really appreciated those kinds of vampires. But again, in in our conversation on the bus, I was just like, I need to rethink that contribution. And in your video, you really did a really beautiful job of connecting that like dichotomy between Louis and Lestat to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV series, Twilight, you know, how it just informs stuff. Like you have the tortured one and the way. fun one. And these are the two sides of what it means to be a vampire. <laughs> how do we get along? Yeah, absolutely. So how did you discover the Vampire Chronicles? How did that happen for you? And did you see the movie first and then read the books? Or did you already read the books? So I had a friend in my Phantom of the Opera fandom circles who's a big Anne Rice fan. And she was like, what? You've never seen Interview with a Vampire? You must. So she gave me this like indoctrination course. She was like, first, you're going to watch the movie. Then you're going to get this book from the library. And then you're going to get this book. And she like gave me assignments and I was here for it. And I fell in love with it as much as she did. So I did see the movie first. And okay. I love the movie. It is my favorite vampire movie. It may be my favorite movie of all movies. Not to say it's like the best movie of movies that I like, but it's a favorite. Like it speaks to me. And then I read the first five books as my friend assigned me. At the time when I was in high school, there were only six books out. I tried to read the sixth book, but it had too much sexual content. And I was a very like asexual teenager. And I'm like, nope. Mm. So I didn't go back to the books until I was in my 20s. And then I've read them all since, I've reread them all since, and I'm like memorizing them 
Yeah. You know that thing where they say, if you do something for 15 minutes a day, you'll eventually become an expert. I was like, I'm going to be an Anne Rice expert. That's my life's mission. I love that. So when you do you have any memory of seeing this movie for the first time and how it affected you? It's sometimes it's hard when we watch a movie a million times, remembering that first experience of it or when we discuss it and all of that. But I just felt completely in love with Lestat. And my friend who in- introduced this to me, it was me and one other friend, like an actual friend that I had in person and high school. So this was my real life friend, but the one who introduced me was one of my internet friends. So mm-hmm. she introduced me and my other friend at the same time. And my other friend really identified with Louis. So we had this like Lestat and Louis, like frenemy fandom, like thing going on. And Jacob really and Edward. <laughs> And I just thought he was so fun. I like that he was monstrous and dark and awful, yet still like glamorous and cool and desirable. Like people thought this guy was cool, even though like he's swishy, right? Like they still thought that was like, oh, yet he's also scary. How can you be beautiful and scary at the same time? And as a fan of the opera fan that fit with my aesthetic entirely, And I thought Tom Cruise did a wonderful job. I had not been a Tom Cruise fan at all before, but now like I'll watch his movies, just be like, where's Lestat in here? Even Anne wasn't like a fan, right? Of of either casting, was she? She she didn't like Tom Cruise before this movie. And when she found out he was cast as Lestat, she's like, no, he's not dark enough. He doesn't have a dark edge. He's a hero. He's a male lead. I need someone dark and sinister and monstrous. Because people look back at Interview with the Vampire and they think of it as like the frilly shirts gay vampires who Mm -hmm. are just like tortured all the time but no they are monsters they are bloody and gory like joe was saying earlier there's a lot of gore in this movie and they forget that so she wanted someone that had that darkness to him and she didn't think tom had it back then but when she saw the movie and she saw what a good job he did of embodying it that darkness plus that fun while still like looking pretty on screen she's i retract Everything I said, she took out a full page article in the newspaper, apologizing to Tom Cruise, retracting everything she said, wow. and saying what a great job he did. did Meanwhile, she... Brad Pitt, she originally thought maybe they should switch roles because Brad Pitt was an unknown back then. So she's maybe okay. he has that darkness. And Tom Cruise is a pretty boy, so he could be Louis. He's pretty enough. But Brad Pitt had read the book, loved the book, loved all the deep philosophy in the book. And he's like, this character is just questioning all these things. Who am I? Where do I fit in the world? And he loved that. But when he got the script for the movie, and it was like the Lestat show, because this is Louis's narration, it's his life story, it's his book. And Louis just mainly in many of those scenes sitting there and watching Lestat be fabulous. Brad Pitt was really upset. He's I'm just sitting in the back room watching. I got the bitch role. I'm not doing any of the cool things that Louis does in the book. I hate this part. Can I get out of this movie? I hate it. And wow. his agent was like, it would cost you $50,000 to get out of this movie. And he's nope. It was well, yeah, not that. at that time. Yeah. yeah. So he was, he hated the movie. He hated it. every second of filming. He was miserable. So Anne Rice came along later and she was like, as much as he hated that role and doing it, it brought to life the character because that character hates himself. He did a really great job. And she thought he was beautiful. Because Louis is her self-insert character, she would joke that I'm the only woman who's ever been played on screen by Brad Pitt. I want to ask a question about that because that I, I have a comment about that. But I'm just wondering, did she offer anybody that at that time that she wanted to play these roles? Do we know? Her, like head cast, fan cast were people from the 70s that she was uh, into when she wrote it. And they had all gotten too old by then. Right. So she didn't have anyone contemporary that she could have suggested. Interesting, though, is like originally... 
when they're first conceiving the movie, when they're in like their workshop talks, because she was heavily involved, she wrote the initial script, which was very much edited. Even though she gets sole script writing credit, there was another yeah. script writer. I don't know if it was Neil Jordan himself or if he like hired someone to change right. a lot of the script. I read I she also wrote a lines. script that she changed Louis to a woman, right? right. Or Lestat, so, one of them. And they were okay. going to cast Cher as Louis. And Cher was like so involved at that point yeah. that she had written a song. So if you look up Cher's vampire song, that's her tie-in song for the movie that if she had gotten cast as Louis, that would have been the song over the credits. Oh. And that song exists. That's how far along they were. It's I want to really go to weird. that plane of existence yes. just to see the movie was Cher. <laughs> when Anne Rice wrote the novel, she was Louis. She was processing right. like her life's trauma. She didn't realize she was processing the trauma of losing her five-year-old daughter to cancer. Until years later, people would be like, so Claudia was supposed to be your daughter, right? And she's like, what? No. And then years later, she's like, oh, wow, I didn't even realize that's what I was writing. Because when you're a writer, stuff just comes out. But And Lestat was heavily inspired by her husband, who she was having tons of marital problems with at the time. Even though she thought he was very charismatic, very attractive, their relationship wasn't great. But she thought if she wrote herself and her husband and their marriage with the character as a woman, that publishers because she had never been published before publishers would be like oh this is trashy women's romance oh just girly stuff just women but if she had written wrote herself as a man they would be like this is art this is literature and they weren't thinking this is gay because the straight goggles were strong because it was just this man having this problem with his roommate and so <laughs> louis is a character who is a man but has a lot of anne rice's thoughts and feelings. She wrote him as herself. And Anne Rice said multiple times that she did not identify as a woman, that she felt much more connected to writing men. She didn't have the language for it, but essentially saying she's non-binary, right? So she's writing this character as her non-binary self in a man's body. And that's how she could get it published and acclaimed as, oh, this is art. This is literature, right? Because people respect men when they have feelings. When women have feelings, it's just women's fiction. So by the time the movie came around in 1994, so this book came out in 76, it's set in 73, it took many years to come out. So in the 70s, people wouldn't take women seriously. So by the time 94 came around, she's like, okay, now it's time to finally make Louis a woman as he should have been all along because people are ready to take women seriously. Turns out they weren't. Turns out they still aren't. Louis remained a man, which is fine because that was her self-projection. And she said, if I write all of my stories as men, if I feel more comfortable writing as men, that's just myself that I'm expressing. This is who I am. And yeah, so they thought about making Louis finally be the woman he was supposed to be. But then they decided, no, people will dismiss this movie as a romance now because you put Louis in that movie, right? And you're going to Like, don't change any of the lines. Don't change any of the scenes. Like, you never see them kiss. You never see them hug. You never see them, like, cuddle. But if it was a woman, you would assume they were doing all that off screen. You They would assume they were married. You would assume it was a relationship. But as a man, a lot of people watch this movie and don't think it's gay at all. Like, you watch it and you're like, oh, wow, I never realized this movie was so gay. But a lot of people with the street goggles on watch this movie and just like, no, it's just bros being bros, man, and having their drama. And they don't see it. And there's been debate ever since then. I was like, no, they weren't really a couple. Come along to the sequel, The Vampire Lestat, where they're actually like kissing and stuff. And like, it's explicitly queer. But in the first book, she didn't include that because she didn't want to be dismissed as romance. So even though they're clearly married, they live cohabiting for 65 years. They're a married couple. They raise a daughter together. It's fuzzy enough that she could get away with it in a straight world. 
And then all the queer people reading it could be like, oh, I see what this really is. You're right. It operates on two different levels. This is fascinating. I also just found a Cher's vampire song. We'll be listening to it after this because I think there's nothing gayer and more of a celebration of Pride Month than the fact that Cher wrote a wrote a companion soundtrack to a wrote a companion song for a role that she didn't eventually did not play. I that is so fascinating that well one Anne Rice like writing writing from a non-binary place without having the language for it. And I think that's yeah. something that like now with the words that we have now with the understanding of, of many lived experiences, having that modern lens and looking back at even artists who were writing 20, 30 years ago and seeing where that seeing how they were doing that. And it's just, Oh, you were this, but there's no descriptions of that further reinforces just like on a like a queer level like further reinforces that like queer people have always been here have will always be here it's just we're waiting for the times to catch up with who we have already who we've already been we've already been like this <laughs> the idea we already and, been new we already been new and the idea that like like you said it perfectly if louis was a woman yeah i'm i'm imagining what that would have been like not with share i just can't do it but I just can't get there with Cher, but if you would assume that plus ninety well, like, share, you have to imagine ninety share. Sure, ninety which... share, yes. But the thing about the thing that like was also really cool between that stood out to me as like someone who watched the series and then watched the movie is that the bickering and the disdain that they like have for each other. It's very who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, but but immortals. Yeah. And it's just it's so cool how they in the series it's more it's very explicit that they are married and they they're like dealing with this decades long disdain for each other. And for me in interview the movie, it's just so fascinating to see them negotiate that, but it's just a giant elephant in the room. And he constantly is saying, Oh my God, when Tom Cruise said, Oh, the widow over there had that beautiful, had that gorgeous fop kill her husband. And then he goes off and they separate them and he goes to suck his blood. I was like, wow, this, that's when I was like, Oh, this movie really is gay and completely fooled everybody. I interviewed that guy, the fop. Oh yeah. Last year at the, New Orleans Vampire Ball, the Anne Rice Fan Club Vampire Ball. And I was like, hey, can I interview you? And he came yeah. on the show. I interviewed him. I wanted to ask you about that because one of the long-standing mythologies around Interview with the Vampire, and again, is one of the reasons that I have been dismissive of it, is that Tom Cruise was the reason that the queer overtures were toned down because he was uncomfortable. So I heard that too. I thought that too. In yeah. the book, The First Night Louis Becomes a Vampire, Lestat has forgotten to get him a coffin of his own. So they have to share a coffin. And Louis is repulsed by having to share a coffin with him because when he was human and Lestat was a vampire, he was like, oh, I want you so bad. You are a shimmering angel and you're so sexy to me. But as soon as he becomes a vampire and now he doesn't have that human looking at a vampire like lens, now he's, I see who you really are. That glamour wears off. And he's just like, now you're annoying to me because Lestat was being a dick. And yeah. I don't want to share a coffin with you because that's gross to me. And uh, men. And but like, even as he does it, he's, oh, it was like being with a lover. And it's this moment he has in the book. In the movie, you see the scene of Tom Cruise shutting Louis into his coffin alone, 
which like, okay, were they originally supposed to share a coffin in the script? And Tom Cruise was like, nope, let's change it. Let's do this. Yet when he's doing that scene, the like look of adoration and love on his face, he's still acting it. So there's that whole like South Park thing about Tom Cruise, like trying to reject the gay, right? So I don't know how much of that he really made happen himself. The rumor is that he did make it happen or his agent did was like, no, we don't want this rumor of Tom Cruise being gay getting further. So we're going to have to tone down any physical thing where he's actually touching Louis. But I thought it was all the gay, like Tom Cruise, like rewriting lines and stuff is like, we got to make sure that they, people think they're just roommates. But when I interviewed that, that actor who played the fop, the way he talked about Tom Cruise, he was like, okay, what are we doing in this scene, Tom? Because the director didn't tell me anything. Tom's, oh, I'm looking to kill you and you're looking to get laid. Like the way he just talked about it, he was just like totally cool with it. So I don't know if that rumor was entirely unfair. And I asked that actor if he got a sense of that from Tom at all, that he was just like, keep a distance from the game. He's like, no, not at all. I didn't feel that at all from him. And the way Tom looks at that character as Lestat, like he is into it. And- Maybe the rumors were wrong. Who knows? Yeah, I think it's important to discuss that. And and again, I'm not a huge Tom Cruise fan anyways, just because I'm not like an action Mission Impossible kind of movies that he's done. I wasn't an interview with the vampire fan. I The movie that I think, because I don't find, oh my gosh, his name just left my brain. Not Tom Cruise, the other one. Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt. <laughs> See, I don't, it's, I don't even think about it. I don't find him attractive except in Fight Club. And that's because of the broken nose they give him. I don't know what that, you, it just got. You read so Elvira's sexy. biography, right? Yes. The part where she's like, I thought about casting Brad Pitt in my movie, but he was too hot that he would make the other male actors look less hot by comparison. Right. I didn't cast him. Yeah. Why would she go after Bob when fucking Brad Pitt is there? (laughs) And I get why other people find he's attractive, but I was never into Brad Pitt. It's the same thing when when I was in middle school, when Titanic came out, I was 13 or 14, 13. All the girls were fucking in love with Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, was Anne Rice. She was like, Leonardo DiCaprio should play Lestat in the next movie. She got yeah, obsessed with I him. know. And but I, I think never it's that understood sort of it. A feat like beauty to them that the internalized misogyny, the toxic masculinity mm-hmm. is going to make some people reject. Yeah, I don't know what it was. I was just really, it's just probably daddy issues. Like when X Men came out and Hugh Jackman walked on the screen, I was like, oh, I'm fucking queer. Anyways. Something I was thinking about that I hadn't ever really thought about in, in in terms of this film is in 1994, we're living, we've talked about this on the show before about like how 20 to 30 years can give you nostalgia, but it's also like the cycle for like political bullshit. So in the 90s, in 94, when this film comes out, culture was fucking gay, gay in a very like lesbian and gay men kind of conversation. We have Katie Lang come out in like 91, 92, Melissa Etheridge, obviously in 93, Ellen comes out in 97 or 98, somewhere around there. Just gay people are really present. And a big conversation happening in culture about that at that time is gay adoption, which was not fully legal in the States completely until 2010, when Florida finally overturned their gay adoption ban. But before that, I think it was like in 68 or 69, a gay man who was told not to tell people he was gay was able to adopt a child on his own. And then obviously, like in the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of queer couples here and there adopting children. Or also what would happen is that people would be in in straight relationships, have children, and then raise those children with gay partners after they Mm -hmm. left the situation they were in or whatever. So in 1994, when this film comes out, 
a huge anxiety for straight people is this idea we have on one side culture is really embracing gay people. We're freaking everywhere. Biggest songs in, in the world at that time are like by women who are embracing their power, who are openly queer, having these really important conversations. We're talking about gay adoption and you have a lot of straight people going, no, we have to stop this. Just like now, 30 years later, the biggest show in the in the queer community right now seems to be Drag Race. Drag queens are everywhere. Trans conversations are everywhere. It's such a massive part of the mainstream di discourse, and you have a huge backlash to it. So when this film comes out, again, this is me overcomplicating horror, as we do. We always joke we're going to change the title of the show, or I joke that we're going to change the title of the show to overcomplicating horror. But you have this movie come out where you have this ostensibly gay couple who decide to try to fix their relationship by having a baby. baby. And she obviously grows to hate herself and detest herself. So we have this film come out where you have a gay couple and Claudia, who at first her life is great, but then as time goes on, she grows to hate herself, which is like exactly what straight people at the time, the heterosexual, heterosexist, cisnormative discourse is Gay people can't have children because they will make their children gay or those children will be very dysfunctional. And you have that come alive in this film. You have Claudia, who I think is actually the most tragic character. She's a lot like Harold in Near Dark, where you're stuck in the body of a child. Mm -hmm. And that as a predator, of course, operates to your advantage, much in Let the Right One in that mm -hmm. conversation. It obviously, if you're only a predatory creature, then yeah, you can prey on other people's sympathy that's great for you, but they're not. Claudia is different from Ellie or Eli, Eli Elias in Let the Right One in that she's very complex and she has emotions and she's becoming an adult. What is she like 60, 60 year old woman trapped in the body of a child. And so when I was like thinking about this, I'm like, ah, that's what we could. <laughs> that's what I could talk about. So I'm just curious, throw that out there. What people's thoughts are on like the gay adoption panic of the 90s and how this film in a way does speak to that anxiety for the straight people watching queer people watching. Maybe we didn't think of it that way or we thought, no, we know our kids are going to be great. And this and statistics actually demonstrate that queer children or children raised by queer people do just as well, if not better, than straight folks. Because obviously there's more intention when you raise your children and there's more, you want those children and you plan for your family in ways that straight people maybe don't always have the luxury of because they just happen. <laughs> anyway, so just throwing that out there on the table as something to think about. I'm curious if that's ever been, if Joe or, or Lisa, if you've ever thought about that. I don't think I have. That's an interesting perspective because I've always thought of Claudia as representing Anne Rice's birth daughter and they're her birth parents and thinking about her from an adopted angle is very different from whatever Anne was putting into it. And even if she wasn't putting that into it at all, society will perceive it that way. So it's still yeah. important. Like what message yeah. winds up coming off of it? And is that kind of like an oops, didn't mean that? Or is it something that should be considered. I think when Claudia grows up and she's gotten to the point where she's, okay, Louis is going to leave me for Armand. He's moving on. We have a horrible relationship now. He feels so guilty about me that he feels like he has to stay with me forever, but I want to get away from that and set him free too so he can be with who he wants to be. The person she goes for is Madeline. And Madeline is yeah. this sort of mother figure, but Claudia does not need a mother figure at this time. 
she's her girlfriend. Like she's looking at Madeline. This is a romance of Claudia's own that she finds. So the adopted child of the queer couple has grown up to be queer herself is still resentful of her parents for holding her back, but not because they're gay for doing it. So it's that overprotectiveness perhaps that is the problem rather than the gayness that is the problem that like when you are a gay couple adopting a child you may overcompensate in ways that a straight mm-hmm. couple wouldn't and then that child would resent that part of it but if they end up gay like claudia does going for madeline as her future relationship it's like aside from that yeah i think again that's sort of it it makes this a really difficult conversation to have because we're mm-hmm. talking about like when people watch it is, yeah, is that's what happening? Is it that she's looking? It's okay. Yeah, these gay dads failed. I need a mother, and I look mm-hmm. for a mother. So people read it that way, or they're open and comfortable enough to remember that Claudia is an adult person trapped in the body of a child, looking for companionship that is something more than a mother, mm-hmm. and that like that brings in a whole other kind of. She doesn't need a mother by then. Exactly. Like, no. I think society, they're right. she needs a mother to get by in the world because she can't survive on her own in her yeah. tiny body. But like personally, emotionally, she doesn't need mothering. Yeah. But it brings up the same kind of thing that like Octavia Butler explores in Fledgling, where she has this vampire who, for all intents and purposes, looks like a child and engages in sexual behavior with an adult male, even though the vampire themselves are 50, 60, 70, 100, whatever, but they're still in a child's body. So it it creates this really interesting kind of conversation that again, like, really queers and also asks that question. Again, it's just it's it's uh, anthropology. We're looking back in the 90s. Butler asks the hard questions that nobody wants to answer. (laughs) It's true. And it makes fledgling. It's a really cool book, but it really makes it hard to read those like scenes between like her who looks like a 10, 11, 12 year old child engaging with a 30 something year old man that Especially like, with the element that he is not a pedophile. He's not naturally attracted to children. He's never been interested in children before in his life, but her vampire right. allure hypnotizes Ma- him into finding yeah. her attractive. So she has ah. turned him into this monster of his own too. It's yeah. very sticky. I actually did a video on fledgling as well. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to watch that as well. Joe, did you think about any of this? <laughs> did I think about the like gay, the gay, gay adoption, adoption crisis panic of the 90s from the early 90s? Like Joshua, like the fact that you asked the question, I'm like, no, I, of course I not. Know. Of course, I did not think about that. However, you're like, the, I wasn't even born yet. I'm so young. I'm such a I'm like, wow, you really you were reaching for this. Was, Do you have any thoughts on the gay adoption panic of the 90s? No, I have none. But what I will say is that this conversation that we've led up to now where we're talking about Claudia as a 60 year old woman in the body of a child and kind of navigating or negotiating as an audience member as a viewer her experience and like seeing her desire it's fascinating because like there this is going to be a very delicate thing to navigate but there's also that idea that like within folks who are young queer folks who are like coming into their queerness and like very secure and know about that desire that they feel within themselves not being of like the age of consent, but like reaching out towards reaching out to other 
people who are older than them because not only are they looking they are looking for someone to to they're looking for that companionship and then possibly also I'll say I'll speaking from the eye right so possibly like for me I know I was reaching out or interested in people that were older than me at a time when it was not like I look back on it now and I'm like wow that was like yep. that was very dangerous behavior but I was like so starved for any type of acknowledgement or attention and just like looking for people in queer community. And I get it because we couldn't have it. Yeah, 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 we couldn't have it in high school. Yeah. Or whatever. And I think it speaks to it speaks to a couple things. It speaks to homophobia, generally, like systemic homophobia that doesn't where you don't see yourself represented in the most like basic and in basic and quote unquote healthy ways where you can imagine like what a healthy relationship would look like. And so I think that that conversation like adds a level of queerness with adds a level of queerness to Claudia's experience outside of like gay adoption panic of the 90s, but more from the idea of being a queer youth that is that knows things that knows themselves intrinsically, but is like not able to express it because of age and access. A thousand percent. And I actually, I hadn't thought about that. So I actually really appreciate that because, and what's funny is I talk about this all the time in my program, because a lot of heterosexual, heterosexist views exist in like sex therapy and in marriage and family therapy and therapy in general. And I often talk about like the way that our society homophobia operates to make victims of queer people, because we just naturally go for older people because we're not given the option to, at least when I was a kid, I couldn't like hold hands with a boy in school, like straight people could. So that's actually a really good observation and exploration. Thank you both for, again, making me think. It's like, I need to give the Vampire Chronicles another go, which I think I will once I finish this damn semester in which I'm drowning. I have to finish your book and then reread interview and maybe just reread the whole, because I have all the books. Because I have when a huge. When you say all the books, do you really mean all the books? I have seven or eight Anne oh, Rice no. books that are There's within uh, that are just in Vampire Chronicles. Well, fifteen in oh Vampire Chronicles, but you can't read some of them without having also read the Mayfair Witch stories. Yes, so yeah, I have hard. those. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, I have those as well. Regardless, I'm going to put that on my list to try. I'm going to finish your book, and then I may have to re-explore, interview the novel. So we've got a few minutes left, which makes me so sad because I could just talk to you all day. But I do want to talk a little bit about the new adaptation because Joe is familiar with it already, and I am curious about. You have a, a great whole series. And we did spend time on the bus talking about it as well. But I would love like your initial thoughts on the new series and kind of what you think moving forward, what it's going to do, or whatever you want to talk about. (laughs) Mine first or Joe's first? No, you first as the Anne Rice expert in the room, what you think of the new adaptation? Okay, I love adaptations. I love when they take a thing and make it weird. Like I like... (laughs) High school AUs, I like coffee shop AUs, put them in space, put them on a submarine, whatever. Mm. I don't mind things being changed. So this adaptation took them and put them in the jazz era of 1940s or 2010s to 40s. Yeah, and something like that. they changed Louis into a black man at that time because they wanted to explore that very big part of New Orleans culture. That's all cool to me. What I did not like about the new series was that they eliminated the femininity of it. They eliminated Mm -hmm. Anne Rice's feminine side. I'm not going to call her female, but feminine side of it 
because it was the show was directed by a cishet white man like wasp who did not get the catholic stuff and who did not get the girly stuff so to him in order to make the vampires cool in his tv show he had to make them very macho and there's a lot of toxic masculinity that was added into Mm. the show which really bothered me because he was bragging roland jones the showrunner was bragging about how much his show was true to the spirit of anne rice despite the changes it made which would have been great i would like a changed weird version version of the show that was true to the spirit but it was not true to the spirit because he was taking these gay characters as a straight man making a show about gay people that he wants to like make money that he wants to have an audience to put it on the screen it felt like he had to take those gay people and be like but look they're still manly and to give them a lot more of that toxic masculine macho-ness which took away from what the meaning of it was to begin with. If what Mm. kept you from engaging with Anne Rice at the beginning was that internalized misogyny or whatever, it was like that girliness, that's what makes it important. That's what makes it like a male character is allowed to have feelings? What? Like we don't get to see that a lot in media. And because Louis was written that way with that both sides of Anne Rice's personal Mm -hmm. identity into it. That's what set him apart. And yes, he's whiny and he's obnoxious and he's tragic and woe is me. But he has a lot of really good points. Like when Brad Pitt read the book, he was like, oh, I vibe with this guy. His like existential philosophy. I think there is plenty of masculine there. But Roland Jones, the show creator, didn't think it was cool enough unless he had them like punching holes through priests head unless they had them being like really violent and awful and Anne rice's vampires are plenty violent and awful already but one of the things about her books is that they never spill blood like you never see blood when they drink all the blood there's never any waste but this show is covered in blood and gore Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. a lot of people will say (laughs) it's a vampire show you can't have a vampire tv show without blood and speaks to human wastefulness right (laughs) yeah and So when you're translating something from a book to screen, you're going to have to make sacrifices like that. What does an audience expect from a vampire show? If we have a vampire show with no blood, people aren't going to like it. So you have to make changes like that for the show. But I think that he made them from a very white man point of view that did Mm -hmm. not work ultimately. The show had great things going for it. It showed an interracial great couple on TV, on like regular TV, not like some special hidden cable channel, which is good. Like we need more of that. And if it's a stepping stone towards better versions, I'm thankful that it exists. But I wish it had more of that non-binary sensibility to it Mm. so that Louis's whole character arc throughout the show is being like, oh, I'm ashamed of being gay. I don't like, I can't let anyone know I'm gay. And he goes from being this very overcompensating macho guy to now I'm a housewife in a sweater just sitting behind the sidelines. And it didn't make sense in its own universe of himself. Like his journey, just like he has this journey in first three episodes to where he has this big climax and he like causes race riots in New Orleans. And then for the entire rest of the series, he's just like hanging out. And it was almost like two different shows there. And one of the things that he said was like, we've taken Anne Rice's work and we've deepened it. First of all, excuse me, Anne Rice is plenty deep herself. It felt very disrespectful for him to say that. 
but the way he deepened it was adding that racial element. So I was like, okay, it's really going to explore race. It's going to talk about the way vampires relate to race, like the vampires as a metaphor for race. But one of the things about Anne Rice's vampires is that they are detached from humanity. And that's part of what makes them monstrous. Once you become a vampire, your human concerns don't matter anymore. But in the TV show, as soon as Louis becomes a vampire, all he cares about is his human concerns. He wants revenge on the people who are racist to him. He wants to make Mm -hmm. the money at his human job, which he doesn't even need the money anymore. And all these human things, which I thought made it more shallow, as opposed to the show creator thinking it made it more deep. But if you were to come to this as Joe did without knowing of any of these things and just saying, hey, there's a new vampire TV show on TV and it's got like black people and gay people. Yay. There's stuff there to enjoy. A thousand percent. That's actually a great transition to Joe's thoughts, because as somebody not familiar, not having read the books, not being an Anne Rice fan or seeing the original interview, I am curious about. So, Joe, your thoughts. I thought that... (laughs) And not a white person. So I'm curious (laughs) about the engagement of race, like what you think about all of that. I think that again we're in a we're in a we're in a time now in media and representation where there are more folks in the room. There, generally, there are more folks in the room that are making these kinds of stories. But studios and studios are seeing that like it is beneficial to start telling stories of difference. And hopefully, when the writers strike, when the writers finally are compensated appropriately, we'll move on to a second season and see where this goes, especially with the introduction of Armand. Well, the uh, second season was finished before the writer's strike happened. They are already oh, filming. Right. I have been hearing oh. lots of stories of the set of filming lately. If you want to hear about that, I could talk about that later. Oh, okay. That'll be offline. That'll be an offline one. But I have to say that it's it's interesting that you mention like the femininity because as you said that, I was like, yeah, that. There's the Mm. difference between the two, right, is that the flamboyance and the like, again, that like foppish dandy, like we like I this is just who I am. Like I'm very capricious, laissez faire about my life and about the taking of life. Right. Which like you don't really see in you don't really see in, in, in the series for Interview with the Vampire. I also think that there is something there to be said about like the misogyny, because just the misogyny that pervades it, especially by the person who is telling it, who is the showrunner, who is guiding and leading the story in that way. I, I think that the performances are fantastic. I think that Eric Bogosian as <laughs> the interviewer is, and all of his complexity is very interesting. Very interesting. I did- I had change of he had already met and talked with them. And the idea that their original interview wasn't like the full story or wasn't like the truth or I thought that was an interesting twist. I did enjoy that. So like the idea is that interview with the vampire as a book Anne Rice wrote when she had some feelings that she had to get out. Right. But then she comes along and writes all these sequels later where she's okay. I was a little bit harsh against my like (laughs) imaginary version of my husband. He's actually, I identify with him more than I do with my old self anymore. So now instead of identifying with Louie, like this was her catharsis, she got it out. Now she identifies with Lestat. Now she's telling his story the whole time. So now Lestat is her, right? Right. So when Roland Jones made this show, he's okay. When the movie came out, there were some sequels, but the movie didn't really focus on that. And the movie is just telling Louis' side of the story, making Lestat look like this asshole. 
But we find out in later books that he has complexity and depth and stuff. So we're going to take that version of Lestat and put him in our TV show, right? This was his big selling point. So it's a second mm. interview now. Louis told this bad version of the story. Now he's going to tell the real version where he admits that they were a couple here. He admits that they were right. gay. And we're going to see the true side of Lestat. But the true side of Lestat is like, Louis said I did all these horrible things, but really they weren't that bad because this was why I did them. But in right. the TV show, instead of showing that, they made him even worse. So Louis, we should just kill evildoers now. And Lestat's like, that's stupid. Whereas in the book, you find out like, oh, Lestat was only killing evildoers all along. So when Louis was saying he was an asshole killing innocent people, that wasn't actually true. So the fact that he yeah. said we were going to see this other side of Lestat and then he does the exact opposite and makes him mm -hmm. even worse. I'm like, what, where are you even going with this? What is your message here that Lestat's not cool enough unless he's like irredeemably evil? And we culturally have a fascination with that kind of character right now where we, like, I think of Succession, I think of, mm -hmm. like, Seinfeld, for instance, a huge show about people that are, like, awful. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. We want, we're, like, we like to explore those sorts of characters where they're, like, irredeemable, but we, which, again, is very queer, right? That meme of, I love listening to a gay person tell gleefully tell me a story in which they are clearly the villain. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, like, that kind of But it's, like, Lestat is a villain. He kills yeah. people. He is a murderer. He kills a different yeah. person every night. He makes friends with them. He sidles up to them. He schmoozes them. He like makes them trust him. And then he betrays them by murdering him. Like that in itself is evil. He doesn't have to be extra evil on top of that. The fact that mm -hmm. wasn't evil enough for these show creators shows this kind of, that's a girly way to be evil. He needs to be evil in a more manly way. Like they didn't right. get that the evil was already mm -hmm. there just inherently in the fact that they are mm -hmm. a vampire because society has come to accept vampires as soft people, right? It's this arc that we have from when Anne Rice invented these horrible monsters also have feelings, but they are still horrible monsters to people being like, oh, they just have feelings or pansies. They're not real vampires. Real vampires are monsters with no feelings. Like, no, they were real monsters the whole time. Like the evil right. was always there. And but that evil isn't enough for audiences anymore. Now audiences mm -hmm. need something on top of that because we're so desensitized to it. We're so used to it. The cliche has become passe. Yeah. 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 If you want to see real evil queers, just watch RuPaul's Drag Race and then <laughs> let Anne Rice's vampires be a little bit more nuanced, I guess. That's the lesson <laughs> that we're talking about in Pride. I don't, I have no idea. Joe, any final thoughts on interview? I'm so grateful for this depth of understanding and it is very... It's very like rare and so much fun for us to have somebody on that come on the show who has such a like depth and breadth of knowledge on yeah. the particular thing that we're talking about. Uh, just Elisa, thank you. Aww. Thank you for going to the trip with to Romania with Joshua and having these long conversations that led to this moment because <laughs> I like I, as someone who is newer to a, to the fandom, and especially as someone who like has stayed true, has stayed in the fandom and found my niche in the fandom because of exploring queerness and the elements of that. I really appreciate like your expertise. So thank you for coming on. And I'm just so excited to be connected to you now. Oh, my pleasure. Oh, that's like so perfect, Joe. Oh, exactly. At least you were just obviously a lot of people on the trip were incredible and awesome and amazing and all the adjective. But I just really enjoyed our time on on the bus, like talking about these things, and especially coming from I was a very no fuck interview, fuck it, <laughs> not exactly. I appreciate and respect 
the space that like Anne Rice inhabits <laughs> or Stephen King inhabits or, you know, these big names in horror. But I was always like, eh, there's like other stuff to do. I just really appreciated our conversations and your like gentle way of not being like, you're fucking wrong. <laughs> you were just so, hey, man, whatever. That's your thing. Fine. But let me tell you, <laughs> let me give you another perspective. Like- was really cool. And I just, I'm just really happy we met and I'm looking forward. I know rumor has it you're going to be visiting California soon. So I hope we get to re reconnect then. And hopefully Joe and I, we can come and see you in person just because I actually think you two would really like each other. So I'm glad that this all worked out and that you had time in your very busy schedule to to offer us. So thank you. So did I actually change your mind on Anne Rice? Or are you just, I can see your point now, but I'm still me. No, I need to re I need to revisit. I need to reread the books. And yeah, you you definitely re I changed my mind on interview. Like I said, if it was just like, oh, you have a good point, then I would have never, I wouldn't have offered to even do this. I would have said that's fine, but still not gonna fucking talk about interview. Um, like you can look at interviews like, yes, it was important and it launched all these other things, which I think are better and more important. And I can appreciate it where it stands. But to actually come back to it and be like, no, this has merit for more than the special. Exactly. And it's both. It's, yeah, I see a conversation happening in the film and the book that I didn't really respect in the same way. And then, yeah, of course, seeing it's like influence on things that aren't even like it. It's not even like other Victorian-ish kind of vampire vibes with lace and that. Kind of, it's not even just that. It's other vampire stories that were influenced by it that I don't think I ever had a full appreciation for. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing to, as somebody who's been a fan of horror for as long as I can remember, awesome to have a new appreciation for an aspect of it that I've been, if not dismissive of, at least ignorant to, or just, eh, whatever. So... I appreciate that from you. The title of this episode will be Joshua was wrong. (laughs) My work here is done. This is, yeah, Joe gets to name the episodes. Again, dear listener, please check out the Maven of the Eventide on YouTube. We'll have all the links, also links to some of the episodes we mentioned on the show. Elisa, you are really just such a delight. And I hope that we get to chat again very soon. And I can't wait till your next video. And I'm so looking forward to getting caught up on like the 200 plus. I love that. It's oh my gosh, I have all these videos I can watch and seeing what you think about all all the other vampire stuff that I love. I'm looking forward to that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Dear Joe. As always, I love you. Dear listener, thank you for listening. Please check us out on Patreon if you would like to see video footage of this, watching me drink all the wine and find us on all the all the things. Actually, at least if you want to real quick, where can people find you? What are your tags and ats and social meds? <laughs> on Twitter, I am Elisa in time, which is E-L-I-S-A in time. That is also my handle on Instagram and Tumblr. On Facebook, you can look for the Maven of the Eventide fan page. The name of the channel is Maven of the Eventide, but I understand that is long and obnoxious. So if you just go on YouTube and look up Vampire Reviews, I'm the first thing that comes up and you can find my channel from there. I do sometimes talk about things more than vampires. I have a vampire book club where we read one vampire book a month and discuss it on a live stream. So go to the live part of my YouTube channel to see all of those book discussions because I'm really proud of those. And on Patreon, I am patreon.com slash maven of the eventide if you want to support the channel and get some exclusive perks as well yes we love that perfect and you can find all those links in the show notes below dear listener thank you all as always for your earballs and good night (laughs) 
Fright School is produced by Joshua Napier and Joe Farron. Our intro was edited by Davy Boy Productions. Our logo was designed by Jamie Channel Guzman. Episodes are edited and engineered by Joe Farron. Fright School is produced in terrifyingly beautiful San Diego, California. <laughs> listening to the Geekscape Network. 